0: Alexa Stop. A podcast about how technology is changing our lives. With Robert Belgrave and Jim Bowes.
1: Welcome to Alexa Stop. My name is Jim Bowes, and this is a very special episode. Robert Belgrave, why is it
0: special? It is special because we are talking about South by Southwest for the second time on the podcast because it's been a year since we talked about it last time. But this time it wasn't just me that went we went together and we Beautiful. spoke on stage somehow they gave us a gig they did we're not sure if it was anything to do with the podcast but we like to think it was and a month has passed
1: um and what can you say about your speaking experience at south by southwest i
0: particularly enjoyed watching you get your makeup done in the green room before we went on necessary i, I opted not for, not to go for makeup uh we haven't had the video yet we'll see who made the right decision
1: And so, yeah, we did our own talk. We did it on the Friday, which meant that that was the first official day of the interactive conference in Austin, Texas, which meant we were kind of then free to enjoy the rest of the conference. Yeah,
0: which was great. And uh, we were in a large room in kind of end of the day slot on, on the Friday. So we weren't really sure who would turn up and we were delighted to see lots of friendly faces, uh, lots of our contingent from the UK came out, which was great. Apparently, we were a real hit with the Germans. Yep, there's some good laughs there. Yeah. And about a couple of hundred people came, which
1: is amazing. On, on uh, the end of the first day, you know, people keen to get to the bar, us included, but they still made it and came and listened to us. So we're very thankful for that. Uh, apart from our talk, what were your
0: highlights of South by Southwest? Highlights? Um, I can tell you what my highlight wasn't, which was the blockchain content. Uh, went to five or six talks in in search of some quality blockchain programming and found absolutely nothing of any real value. Left wanting. Would you say you learned nothing about blockchain during your time at the conference? The one thing I learned about blockchain was that Ted from Bill & Ted, whose name I can never remember, he's Will something or other, is producing a blockchain film. That's pretty cool. Sounds like it might be really good. Yeah. Uh, I went and had a chat with him afterwards about blockchain. That was probably the highlight of the five or six talks I went to. And that was actually in the film track. So so, whilst blockchain was a disappointment, um, the AI content in places was really, really good. Yeah, the quantum computing stuff was really exciting. Uh, I mean, I think for me, the kind of key trends were the sort of ethics of AI and taking responsibility for it. There was a really great talk where somebody said AI is a, a child and it's up to us to be a good mother to it, which kind of really re- resonated with me. And there were some really good panels on that sort of subject. Uh, There's was an amazing woman called Nell Watson who was talking about the idea that AI might hold up the mirror to us and we might not like what we see and, you know, and some other really interesting concepts about how would you feel if you were employed by AI. There might be businesses that are set up and run by AI that employ humans around the edges, which was kind of really interesting. Yeah, that was a really interesting concept. One of my highlights as well, definitely that. I and
1: mean, a couple of things
0: where people had a narrow miss with
1: controversy because we watched the CEO of Waymo talk about their program in um, Phoenix,
0: Arizona. We did. So Waymo, for those that don't know, is a self-driving car company uh, owned by Alphabet or or Google, as more commonly known. And it's kind of the big competitor to Uber in the space. And of course, about a week
1: later, also in Arizona, Uber had a car crash. So I think there would have been some interesting questions if those two events had crossed over. It looks to me like Waymo may be a bit ahead of Uber in the self-driving game.
0: Yeah. And the, the narrative, as I understand it, is that Uber are cutting corners to try and catch up after they got banned from using all the stuff that they allegedly stole from Waymo in that infamous court case that took about two years and concluded recently. Uh, And then, as Jim says, you know, a couple of weeks after we were there watching Waymo's very impressive demo of what they've been doing, uh, an Uber car unfortunately killed somebody in, in testing, which was a real, you know very sad situation. So which interestingly suspended the testing probably for both
1: companies in Arizona, all all autonomous testing for the time being. And then another one was that the sales director of uh, Cambridge Analytica spoke, uh, and he narrowly avoided uh, some serious controversy with the data collection from Facebook debacle that's been going on uh, since South by Southwest. Um, And I guess uh, he was probably pretty pleased he avoided some tough questions from people.
0: Yeah, you can imagine what that would have been like, right, if he'd spoken a week later. Um, there, I'm sure there were some people from Facebook kicking around as well who probably would have had a pretty fun time too. So, yeah, all in all, as always, it was a fantastic experience going out to Austin. I, you know, As I've said before on this podcast, I'd encourage anybody that hasn't been to go next year. It's kind of a pilgrimage, really, for anyone in technology and, and digital. Do you know what my highlight was, Rob? What was it, Jim?
1: Singing Wannabe by the Spice Girls at karaoke twice. Once with the drum and uh, once for Kev's birthday, uh, I had a ball doing that.
0: Yeah, I, I remember being asked to set up the VPN for the karaoke when I was half cut on margaritas and taking great pride in being able to whi- do it, whipping out the laptop and beautiful moment, sorting out the tunneling for the VPN.
1: Now, of course, um, we're here to really introduce our uh, our talk from South by Southwest. And uh, I guess what were we were we talking about?
0: Yeah, so uh, this episode from this point onwards is a live recording. Uh, we've got a, a great recording, courtesy of the team at South By, of our piece on stage. So we're going we're gonna to dedicate the rest of this episode to that. The piece was called Digital Renaissance, The Best is Yet to Come, and was kind of born from the idea of our, kind of came from last year, right? So I attended last year and was really struck by the kind of dystopian viewpoint of artificial intelligence and kind of people fixating on the negatives of what the future might look like. So we thought it might be fun to do a kind of upbeat piece looking more at it through a positive lens and all the amazing stuff that's happening and so for about 45 minutes that's what jim and i spoke about and we uh, we, we hope you enjoy it we're gonna bring it to you now we're the eternal optimists let us know what you think south by southwest friday how are you doing how's it going
1: <laughs> we only ever appear in this order
0: we do jim is um, always to my left exactly
1: um how are you feeling everyone all right strong yeah you ready for a beer <laughs> Thank you for coming to see us at this sort of late time on, on a Friday, on your first day. Um, my name's Jim Bowes. Uh, look, it says so on there. I'm Jim Bose. So that, that man over there
0: is Mr. Robert Belgrave. Yes, I am. Hello, everybody. And uh, we think we'll sit. Should we sit? Let's do it. With like four chairs for two of us. <sighs>
1: How civilized. Just kids. So feel free to heckle us. You can do that along the way. But we're going to sort of chat about uh, why the best is yet to come. Yes, indeed, we
0: are but maybe we should talk a little bit about who we are and what brings us here today. That's a good plan. So um, Jim and I run businesses, but we also have a podcast together called Alexa Stop, and we've been lucky enough to interview some incredible people over the last two years on the theme that we talk about, which is how technology is changing our lives. And um, it's been really interesting kind of meeting these fascinating people and kind of hearing their stories, some of whom we'll talk a bit about today, and what really struck us particularly after last year's conference, was there's this kind of dystopian view of the future, and people, particularly in the press, like to focus on the negatives.
1: The robots are coming. The
0: robots are coming. Uh, None of us are going to have any jobs, lots of things like that. So we thought it would be fun to do a talk today focusing entirely on the positive and about how maybe actually there's a view of the future that looks great, and that we're all going to have more time to relax and enjoy, and I won't give too much away. So...
1: I, um, I first got involved in the internet and in digital uh, nearly 20 years ago now, and I worked for a water and air hygiene company, and the water and air hygiene company did things like get dead pigeons out of cold water storage tanks, uh, and uh, what else did they do? They did things like clean the fat out of uh, extractors in, in places like uh, restaurants and those kinds of things and hotels. And I convinced my boss, I worked in the marketing of this, I I convinced people they wanted to use our company to clean up the fat and dead (laughs) (laughs) stitches. Glamorous uh, stuff. Yeah, it was a very glamorous role. And I convinced them to send me on a one-day course about uh, websites and about digital and the internet. This is in the late 90s. And I knew at that moment that the the path of my career was going to change. And uh, I've got to be honest, I, I, I then worked for a startup. Um, that took $10 million off BMG, and I, I was pre-MySpace, and we, we brought fans and artists closer together. I got to work with famous Swedish rappers and had some of the most random times of my life. And then for the last 15 years, if I'm really, really honest, I've kind of sold variations of the same project <laughs> to people. Uh, with You know, we you know they're streaming this, right? <laughs> it's fine, don't worry. Oh, they know. It's fine. Those projects have brought a more enormous value to many people of across course the they world. Have, of course they have. They were just all a little bit like variations of each other. And some of them were more complex than others. And some of them helped people apply for school places for the first time ever. And things like that. So they, they were not bad projects. They were good projects. But what I'm feeling at the moment is like the same excitement that I felt when I was 18 years old. Uh, and I thought something new is about to happen. I asked Rob earlier. I said, Rob... Do you you wish you were 15 or 20 years younger now and at the start of this, or are you really, really glad that you've gone through this age of uh, becoming digital and uh, and digitalization, and you're also now standing at the tipping point of this next exciting thing, and so you can use all that you've learned and all the exciting stuff that you've done so far in being involved with
0: this next bit? It's a great question, and one that I, I would struggle to answer, but I think that What's clear to me is that whether you're, whether you're kind of where we are today and you're going to enjoy the next 20 years or, or whether you were 18 now, I think it's going to be a fantastic two, three decades. Um, but maybe before we talk about the future, we should talk about the past and our, our theme for the day. We should. Uh, so I have a
1: question for Rob. Rob, have you ever submitted a proposal for a major conference about a 300-year period in history that you know nothing about? Well,
0: funny you should ask, Jim. Uh, <laughs> Thankfully, it turns out that our assumption, uh, assumptions, I should say, about the Renaissance were correct. And that after doing lots of research into the, uh, well, the 14th to the 17th century, we discovered that a lot of stuff that went on then really plays out in terms of what we think is going to happen now. So um, maybe some of you are as uninformed about the Renaissance as I was. So we thought we'd just start with a kind of a quick pop history lesson yeah, come so on, hit me. Hit me with a little bit of Renaissance history. What, what's the Renaissance, Rob? <laughs> um, the Renaissance is a period between the 14th and 17th century, took place predominantly in Europe. Italy's kind of the, the motherland of it, the kind of heart of it. And it was a period where the world saw amazing transition and disruption to all kinds of different disciplines from music, art, philosophy, psychology, technology, science, education, religion, and uh, as a result, things kind of changed gear and, and really changed. So we thought we'd talk a little bit about a couple of the big hitters, as we put it. The the big hitters. So, I mean, we couldn't start with big hitters if we didn't talk about Nicholas Copernicus. <laughs> no, we couldn't. So Mr. Copernicus was a, a legendary mathematician, but is most widely known for his heliocentric view of the universe. So this is the guy that figured out that the sun's in the middle, not the other way around. Which turned out to be quite important, as transpired. I mean, obviously, uh, transpired. props out to the Flat Earth crew that are, like, gaining traction at the moment. I mean, I'm not we, sure they've got everyone in
1: this room with them, but um, there were people right back in the Renaissance that kind of knew their planets.
0: Yeah, there were indeed. And uh, his mate Galileo also was a key part of that. Very famous for being in Queen's Bohemian Rhapsody. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 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 and... Um, this you, might seem expensive, but it really right. isn't. Um, and also for the thermometers, right, that everyone seems to end up having. I mean, do you? I have a Galileo thermometer. I do. I think everyone who
1: uh, is a relative of a geek uh, at some point uh, decides, I know exactly what Rob would like for Christmas, a Galileo thermometer. Indeed. And if you haven't seen one, there, there's like weird glass tubes
0: with these colorful orbs in them.
1: And they float based on the temperature. Although... Well, do you know why? It's some science
0: thing, isn't it? No, I don't. <laughs> we didn't go that detailed okay stuff. but um well, while we're talking about the people of the renaissance we can't talk about the people without talking about da vinci right so um there he is leonardo our mate leonardo multidisciplinary genius but probably most widely known for the mona lisa i think it's fair to say along with lots of other big things but it's not um, a bad sketch not a bad sketch did yeah, the can, test of time that one you can still see it people still go and see it even though it's really old you know that right Uh, Apparently so, apparently so. Deep facts for me, I represent the deep facts. Available for viewing in Paris. So we've talked a bit about the people. The other thing that really symbolised this period of history was technology. And obviously we're going to talk a bit about tech today. So we thought we'd pick out the kind of killer piece of technology from the era. And that was, of course, the printing press. Yeah, Uh, the, the Gutenberg press. The Gutenberg press indeed. And here's a lovely picture of some people working on a Gutenberg press for you. So Joseph Gutenberg, a German chap invented this, and it just transformed the world, really. I mean, it's seen now as the most important development of the second millennium, which is quite a major development. And it kind of enabled the sharing of knowledge and the reproduction of knowledge in a way that just simply wasn't possible before that. So.
1: And so if we think about something now that you could compare to it, do you think 3D printing and, and the changes in
0: manufacturing could be as important in this millennium? It's a good question. I think... I think it will be. I don't think people see it that way now. Like, I think if you if, if you haven't had the chance to have a play with a three D printer, you need to go and have a look at one in action because it's just kind of bewildering to see what it does. Um, I think that three D printing, when we look back hundred years from now, will be just as meaningful as the printing press was in that in that period of history. So, um, you know, they're they're doing things like three D printing houses now. Like in the last year, they've managed to three D print houses out of concrete in less than a day, which is pretty quick. I mean, I've watched grand designs; it takes ages. It, it does indeed. That might be a joke for, for an English audience, but um, it's a show about making nice houses. Just, just to the people that are not from the UK in here, if I say anything
1: that you find not funny, laugh, because it's definitely funny in the UK. <laughs> yes, it is. So um, especially the jokes that Rob made me not put in the show. So we'll maybe do an after show show uh, in the bar later. Sounds good. There's so Some good stuff there. Um, i tell you what, though, Rob, uh, the, the Renaissance, it wasn't all good, was it? No. There is the small matter
0: of the plague.
1: Um.
0: (laughs) Yeah, awkward. Uh, Yeah, so the Black Death, the plague, wiped out basically half of Italy, right? About 50% of the population of every major city in Italy was wiped out by the plague. And it created a really interesting scenario because it kind of turned society on its head. And a lot of transformational change came as a result of that. But the thing that I think links to the point we're going to make today was that it created this scenario where they had abundance of resources. And we think abundance is going to play a really key part in the future, and it's something we're going to unpack for you in a minute. So, uh, yeah, the plague, despite killing lots of people, changed the kind of wealth structure, changed the kind of hierarchy of politics, um, became a more secular country, and and religion kind of lost its foothold, and it it kind of gave birth to this real acceleration over the, the following period. Yeah, so if we kill half the people, that's a really good setup for making something awesome
1: happen. Is that the, That's the point here. That's the point. Okay. We're not going to kill half the people in our suggestion for a second renaissance. No. However, uh, there are some trends happening. Um, and so uh, in, in Europe at the moment, um, and founded by the German government, um, there's uh, something called the Fourth Industrial Revolution being referred to, or Industry 4.0. And that's mostly centered on what modern manufacturing looks like so the transformations in robotics internet of things things like preventative maintenance uh, all the devices around us predicting uh, when they need their fan belt changing or when you need uh, i don't know some new toilet roll because the new toilet roll holder predicts when you're going to run out and it <laughs> uses machine learning to track your bowel movements or something like that um logistics the last mile we know about all of these topics but actually, we think something more fundamental than, uh, than this definition of the fourth industrial revolution is happening. And so we've picked um, three ideas, three people, and three technologies to talk about today. There's so much that we could talk about, uh, but we've got to limit it somehow. Otherwise, we'll be keeping you here all night. And we
0: do have some people at the back that could lock the doors, but uh, I'm not sure that you'd appreciate that. Um, so why don't we kick off? So, yeah, this idea of abundance that I mentioned before is the first big idea. And... Um, to understand abundance and where we're going, you need to understand this idea of demonetization. So there's a lot being said about this, a lot being written about it. Basically, what it means is that most things we rely upon today, goods, services, manufacturing, is all going to be marginalized in cost. It's all approaching a situation where it's essentially free. And that's going to have some quite profound impact on the world as we know it. And I think it, it kind of feeds into the vision of the future that I have and the way that I see the next 100 years for, for humanity. The,
1: the, the, the slide on the screen at the moment represents uh, a renaissance view of abundance, which is a fabulous feast.
0: Yeah, or maybe a Austin barbecue joint, I don't know. But, um, yeah, that sort of, you know, that, that, that view is, is certainly the one that, you know, that, you might, that might come to mind when you think of abundance, but I don't think it's quite like that. I don't think it's like gluttony, right? Like, I think it's kind of a more... more meaningful and and distributed future and so we're going to focus on a couple of areas of abundance um,
1: and one of those is energy and this beautiful picture of a panda (laughs) is a solar farm
0: yeah if you've not seen this this is a a real solar farm in china that they decided to lay out so it looked like a panda from above so that it got included in our talk that was the that was the reason that That must be why yeah some guys that's definitely why so um energy, right? So we have this interesting situation where 8,000 times more energy than we need hits the face of our planet every day. And we're not using it yet, which seems like a really obvious solution. And what's happening is that finally today, we're at this point where we're kind of at the tipping point where it becomes cheaper to produce energy renewably than it does to produce it with fossil fuels, nuclear, etc. And over the last year, we've seen, particularly in countries like Germany, a scenario where I think, I think for about 30 days in Germany, 85% of their energy was produced by renewables. Uh, there was a day where they actually shut down fossil fuel production because the spot price fell below the wind production price because they had a big storm and it was really windy. So we're in the situation where energy is finally becoming widely available from renewable sources and most importantly, cheaper. You know, because I think that it's all very well us talking about climate change, and I, I believe in climate change, and I think it's a big problem, and we need to be responsible about how we pollute. Some people don't think that. And that's, you know, people have their views. Um, but it's much easier to have the debate about it being cheaper, right? As soon as energy becomes cheaper to produce renewably, it's simply going to take over, and that's what's gonna happen. So. Um, yeah, I think energy is going to be a really, a really profound impact. And of course, one of the fascinating things about this is
1: that uh, some of the countries that have the most energy are some of the poorest in the world at the moment. Mm-hmm. And
0: so it also has potential maybe to create some level of redistribution of wealth. Yeah, absolutely. I think keep an eye on that one. It'll be really interesting to see if those countries manage to kind of capitalize on that, that, that new industry. So um, yeah, maybe moving on from energy. Yeah. In an episode of the podcast uh, last
1: year, we spoke to the senior vice president of uh, Hyperloop One. Uh, Nick Earl. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're uh, you know one of many companies trying to transform uh, transportation. And I mean,
0: Rob, you you, you love Hyperloop. You, you <laughs> were um, a cynic before we did that interview. Yeah, I mean, I'm a paid-up Elon Musk fanboy, but um, Hyperloop, I was skeptical about, as a lot of people were in the scientific and technology communities. And we we had this opportunity to interview this guy called Nick. So Nick's kind of fascinating character. He ran the cloud program at Cisco for ten years. Uh, he was at HP for, I think, 10 or 15 years as well, yep. through that sort of early period of the Internet. So he'd kind of been at the forefront of that generation of guys that were part of Silicon Valley starting and that whole kind of transition from there. So he'd had a great career, and he was, what, I don't know, late 50s, getting on for, for, for 60. Let's hope he's not watching. <laughs> I would say he was mid-30s. Sorry, Nick. And he just uh, retired very early. Yeah, so he'd retired, right? He, he'd, he was in this really interesting situation where he'd, he'd, he'd finished a great career, and he decided to retire... And he got this offer to come back and, and be part of Hyperloop. And it was so inviscerating for him, so so exciting, that he couldn't help but, but go back and do it. And when he was telling us that story at the beginning, it suddenly piqued my interest. You know, This is clearly a very smart guy who, who wouldn't take a, take a punt like that if he didn't believe it was, they were going to pull it off. And so we interviewed him for an hour and, and spoke for a while afterwards. And they are going to pull it off, I think. Like, but, but what is Hyperloop? We should probably get into. Yeah. So Hyperloop is an idea that was essentially an Elon Musk idea that he didn't have the time to pursue, so he just kind of gave it to the world in true Elon style. And initially it was picked up by various uh, academic institutions and they did a lot of work kind of proving it could be done because it was just theoretical at this point. And they got it far enough that some commercial operations, one of which is Hyperloop One, came in and and went and started raising money to develop it. So what is it?
1: Well, I guess I was just going to say, in the week that we interviewed Nick, I think they'd raised $85 million to take things on to the next level. They've got a test track. Yeah. What is it? It's uh, basically flying train pods on the ground,
0: right? (laughs) Yeah, that's how you describe it, Rob. That's that's exactly how i describe it. I mean, I might go a little bit further and say that um, if you imagine the air pressure at 100,000 feet, uh, there's basically no wind resistance. And so by pressurizing a tube, which is what they're planning to do, not unlike the one in our our slide there... um, they can bring that, that air resistance level down to earth and it removes the need for energy to propel something at sort of six to 800 miles an hour. So that imagine a train in a tube that levitates using electromagnetic levitation that can fly down this tube at 800 miles an hour and, and they can do it in a very flexible way. So rather than having a big long train that has to stop at every single station to the destination, they can kind of split it up into almost like car sized pods or maybe up to sort of 20 or 30 people. And... This is not sci-fi. They're building them now. They've got contracts in India, uh, in in Dubai. Um, I think they've got a contract in North America. They're certainly close to having one. Um, And they're planning to use this not just to change the way we all move around, but to change the way that freight moves around as well. So, Yeah, I think one of the things that's fascinating about it, sort of
1: coming back to the energy uh, discussion that we started on, is that it does use, uh, comparatively, a very small amount of energy. So there'll be a point at which uh, the pod gets sort of fired some power, Mm -hmm. uh, if you like, and then uh, it gets sort of sent on, and it might sort of get a little booster along the way. But the vast majority of the journey actually is very low power.
0: Yeah, Yeah, and so... You know, Hyperloop is coming and it's the first new mode of transportation in 100 years since the airplane, uh, but there's also some quite significant change happening to the types of transportation that are more familiar to us. So the autonomous car obviously is, is a kind of key area. And talked about pretty much everywhere at the moment, so we're not going to talk about autonomous cars too much? No, I, I think the key thing about autonomous cars to understand is that It's about 10x cheaper to own an autonomous car versus owning a a gas car or a petrol car. But you're probably not even going to own them. No, indeed. And and so actually, once you get into shared ownership, it becomes cheaper again. But it's not a question of if this is going to change the way cars are owned and used. It's a question of when, right? And um, experts reckon that by 2025, the car as we know it is completely dead. Uh, It may well be sooner than that. And... That's really not very far away, and is going to have a really massive impact on our lives. And like, I think about cars now almost like I think about film cameras. It's like some of us in the room might own film cameras, but we probably leave them on the shelf at home, and maybe get them out once in a while when we're feeling adventurous. I don't know. Um, so if you, that's what I do on my weekends, anyway. But um, what are you recording, <laughs> from I've backed myself into a when, difficult when you're corner there. I'm just going to swerve back onto automotive. So, um, you know, if you own a Maserati or a Ferrari or a sports car of any type... you know, you, People you, are filling that in for themselves. They are. You might leave it in the garage, right? And you might take it out once a year or twice a year. But actually, for your everyday needs, it's going to become so much more convenient and cost-effective to use an autonomous vehicle that that's what you'll do. Um, and if we look at when the Model T was created, it only took about four years from the Ford Model T turning up for it to completely replace the horse and cart. So, where are we today? 2018? Feels like 2025 might be a bit too far away, actually. What do you think?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it could, it could happen. When it happens, it will happen really quickly. Uh, I think, bizarrely, as a Londoner, I've not owned a car for most of the last decade, and I bought one a year ago. And I think I, I come over the stat of, I think cars, on average, spend 94% of their time not in use in Europe, anyway. Uh, and um, and I, I think, probably, I use my car 1% of the time. So, I would happily go back from car ownership so let's talk about something different when it comes to abundance let's talk about uh, communication
0: yeah so communication i think like for me i'm massively dyslexic i hated school i I basically taught myself everything i know on the internet for that sort of formative period of my my teenage life and so this one's quite close to home for me and quite a personal one and i think the thing that people don't realize about communication and, and really what i mean is the internet is that still today less than half of the global population has access to it so, some stats for you. In 2010, only 1.5 billion of about 7 billion people in the world had internet access, which is really low, I think. I mean, we're all very lucky in this room. I'm sure everybody here has internet access in their pocket and at home. Um, but that certainly wasn't the case then and isn't the case now. So, uh, 2016, that number improves to about 3 billion of 7.5. So, we're still not even halfway there. Um, But the forecasts are that by somewhere between 2022 and 2025, we're going to reach 100% global population with Internet access.
1: I mean, just think about all of those people rediscovering all of the
0: memes. (laughs) (laughs) I mean,
1: it would be like walking into all of the best movies you've ever ever could find and going,
0: oh, my God, I've really missed out on this stuff. Like, just imagine discovering Netflix. I mean, it's bad enough when you've been keeping up with everything. Imagine discovering Grumpy Cat. You know, 20 years after Grumpy Cat.
1: Maybe there'll be like a, 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 a meme renaissance. Yeah, a meme <laughs> there'll be like, you know, people will
0: throw retro internet parties just to like catch up. Right. I look forward to going to one. So, um, so yeah, that's coming. And why is that coming? It's coming because a couple of really smart people and businesses are figuring out how to put internet infrastructure in space. So on the slide, we had a picture of Google's Loon, which is essentially a, a kind of set of internet infrastructure attached to a weather balloon and they can kind of float them around the world in a low orbit and, and kind of distribute internet access from above. Uh, Facebook are working on a project with solar-powered drones that are sort of autonomous and will fly around doing a similar thing. Uh, Richard Branson and some other entrepreneurs are launching a 900-satellite network. Uh, SpaceX and Elon Musk are doing a similar thing. And we're not talking like modem-speed internet here. We're talking like 400 megabit to gigabit, which, for the techies, is as you'll know, is fast, and, and it's, 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 it's quick, right? So we're talking about completely 100% available internet access for the whole planet. And the other thing that's really interesting about that is coming back to this abundance is probably going to basically be free. Yeah. So, um, because so many of them are doing it and sending these things, they're going to have to make it free, right? It, it, exactly. And so um, remember, this is all about this idea of abundance in, in energy, uh, in transport, and in communication. And of course, I mean, one of the access ways to this at the moment certainly is the smartphone. Yeah, and so again, we've all got a smartphone in our pockets, but the other thing that's going to happen as a result of this is smartphones are basically going to be free for lots of reasons. The cost of production is getting cheaper, but also it seems pretty clear that the way that that all businesses are going to sell products to people is via smartphones, right? And it's all going to be delivered over the internet. So, if I want to sell you something, I need you to have a smartphone in your pocket, so it's probably going to be in my interest to just give you one, particularly if it only costs, say, $10 to manufacture.
1: I mean, I think if we look to somewhere like China, where apps like Alipay uh, are, are very popular, and they're, they're much further ahead than a lot of other countries in terms of the cashless way of, of, of um, operating, then we can sort of start to see that happen, where people live every moment through, through a device. And it may or may not be a smartphone. Um, mm-hmm. There's... Uh, some changes at uh, Apple that have happened that, that suggest that there could be in a couple of years a big announcement that maybe starts to uh, look at the removal of the smartphone from our day-to-day lives. Obviously 4G has gone into uh, the Apple Watch and, and so whether it's a smartphone or not a smartphone uh, low-cost devices that are transformative to how we interact with each other mm-hmm. and transact.
0: Yeah, it's going to be massive and, and I think it inevitably ends up being an implant but it's very hard to make that sound positive so we'll, we'll swerve implants for today but mm-hmm. I look forward to it personally. I think it would be great. I mean, you could have all the knowledge of the world ever.
1: That's a positive thing about an implant. Yes, it is. Yes, and it you is. know, I promise I'll give you a biscuit afterwards and a cup of tea, like you were doing giving blood after I've implanted you. No, not working for you. Let's sounds, change topic. Sounds great. So let's move on. So let's talk about ethics um, in this world of abundance, um, where where things have changed and there's a sort of decentralisation and a demonetization one of the things that we're going to need to think about is our own relationship um, with the world. Uh, And uh, if we want to use technologies like blockchain for currencies and we want to decentralize power, actually uh, we're gonna need to take greater responsibility for our role in the world. And if there's a, a world of abundance and a world of automation where maybe we don't have so many jobs anymore, where people have more time on their hands, people are gonna need to find new ways to find purpose. And so the conversation about ethics and citizenship and consumerism and capitalism generally becomes a really fascinating one because I think so far, you know, consumerism has kind of worked okay, but consumerism uh, and consumerism as a form of capitalism works on the idea that there's always someone poor to make stuff for us uh, and then we ship it somewhere else where people that are richer buy it. And I think. If there's a genuine redistribution of wealth uh, or at least the lower level of quality of life comes up and the need to do menial work decreases substantially, then there's a need for us to address how we find purpose in this world and what that is. And there's some really interesting projects out there. We're going to pick a couple. There's one called the New Citizenship Project in the UK uh, that is looking at exactly that, looking at projects that redefine our relationship with capitalism and consumerism. Uh, and uh, and and look to a world where we find purpose in diff- different things, whether that's volunteering, whether whether that's uh, activities that we have passion for. But there's definitely, I, I think, a need. If we take the abundance thing as something that's going to happen, and some of the other ideas that we're talking about, then people are going to need to find meaning in a different way. Um, and one of the other topics that's really fascinating at the moment is—and there's plenty of talks about this here—is the ethics of artificial intelligence uh, and, and machine learning.
0: Yeah, it's massive, isn't it? I mean, I saw some amazing talks on that last year. Um, I found really inspirational about this kind of. Responsible deployment of AI and making sure that we don't have bias in the training data and there's a fantastic woman called Kate Crawford who was not in our deck but I just would give a shout out to who gave a talk last year about dark days. The the, the worst is yet to come was kind of her view of it right and she was talking about um, automatic deportation in America and and some of the data sets that are being used for that. Um, but we were lucky enough to interview someone really interesting, weren't we? And um, Andy Budd, yeah,
1: who yeah. runs an agency in the UK called Clear Left, uh, and he um, there's a film called Ex Machina uh, which is about a general AI I'm sure lots of you have seen it um, it was filmed in uh, Uve in Norway uh, which is a beautiful part of the world uh, has you know, forests and waterfalls and he took 20 people to uh, talk about the ethics of AI uh, late last year and um, But what he did was, and I think this is the important point here, is the conversation about artificial intelligence and ethics has been locked away with technologists. Mm -hmm. Um, And what he did was he took copywriters and he took science fiction writers and he took experts in ethics and they all discussed this. And I think the message for for me is that we all need to be involved in this conversation and particularly as people that understand artificial intelligence perhaps more than the, the general population, Um, we've got a responsibility, actually. If we talk about our citizenship and and our role in society as people that understand these things, then part of that is to make more people aware of the possible impact on their lives. And so uh,
0: some of the things they talked about was uh, that mainstream understanding of AI is poor. Yeah, it's a sort of haphazard understanding, and so everybody kind of defaults to this terrifying Terminator image. Like every time you see a, a... a talk like this where people are trying to be negative about AI, sure enough, you get the red eyes and the Terminator silhouette. And, and actually, that's not really very helpful because AI is going to improve our lives in so many ways and is, is nowhere near being sentient or doing the whole Skynet thing that everyone loves to, to poke fun at. So that was kind of the first point, wasn't it? And um, yeah, I don't know. One of the other ones that, <clears throat> that really stood out for me was this idea that wild ideas are valuable right now. Yeah. Um, these are some of the things they kind of came up with in their agenda, by the way. Check it out if you want to see the full list, the Juve agenda. Um, but yeah, the second idea was this, this concept that wild ideas are valuable right now. We're kind of in this exploratory stage of the technology. And actually, we shouldn't be terrified of like, you know, creating some sentient computer because we're still miles away from that. Actually, we should be exploring all these different things and, and looking at how they might impact our lives for the better. And one of the other things that they sort of
1: accepted was things will go wrong. Yeah. So, not everything's always going to be great about AI, and I think often we get hung up on the conversations like, "Will a driverless car kill its passenger or kill the pedestrian?" Um, but we kind of need to uh, progress past that conversation and 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 just really make sure that that as the general knowledge and understanding comes up, and, and I think that calls back to what we were saying. And the reason that we're optimistic is that you know there's eighty thousand people at this conference uh, who are the people most able to understand uh, what this technology might mean and if everyone here went out and had a meaningful conversation about artificial intelligence and the changes that are going to come the network effect of that will mean that we can make sure it's a positive effect yeah. and i think that links well into um our, our sort of final idea that we think is really important which um is taking things into your own hands um and I think, um, for me, if we look at times when um, people have taken things into their own hands, uh, often that's a counterculture uh, having an effect on the edges of society and creating ripples that ultimately affect the centre. And I think, if we to give an example of that, punk as a movement, so there was sort of uh, general unease and unrest at mainstream culture in the US in the UK in the 1970s and bands like the Sex Pistols uh, created things like this that uh, really sort of hit back at at the mainstream and uh, took a very DIY approach Uh, and so for me you know uh, okay we're talking about the Renaissance and the philosophers and the artists but punk is kind of another Renaissance period too for me Uh, and I think we've got an opportunity to create another one of those Uh, and we also so in our last episode of Alexa Stop we interviewed um, Sam Conniff
0: yeah, we did. So Sam is um, an author of this fantastic book called Be More Pirate, which comes out on Penguin Random House in May. We've actually, he kindly gave us five pre-sale copies that we've got here today, which we'll give out for the best questions in the Q&A at the end. Um, plugging someone else's books, a bit weird at South By. It's normally people plugging their own books, isn't it? We think if we but, do it long enough, we'll get a book deal, Rob. that's, yeah, that's, the, uh, that's the hope. But um, Sam is this amazing guy who's kind of had a... a, a incredible career, doing all kinds of, of, of stuff. He, he kind of created the Chief Purpose Officer Movement and, and kind of this whole idea of really putting purpose at the core of an organization. And he's moved on to, to create this this book called Be More Pirate, which is kind of like an, a manual for how to do something about it, right? How to kind of disrupt the world a little bit and, and kind of take change into your own hands. And just sort of briefly give you some, some insight. So pirates, when we all think about pirates, we think about Captain Hook and we think about Captain Jack Sparrow and this kind of you know it's, it's very sort of glamorized isn't it it is I was enjoying those thoughts Rob uh, <laughs> As make me smile as you said it but, but actually pirates uh, we're talking about you know 300 years ago the kind of golden age of pirates they were incredibly progressive and it was a group of people who didn't want to participate in being part of the Royal Navy or the East India Trading Company and kind of pillaging the world as a lot of those organizations were yeah. they wanted to kind of step away from that and kind of do things better and Actually, if you look at what what was happening with pirates back then, they were incredibly progressive. They were doing all kinds of things that only now we're working out as a you know as a population are a good idea, like flat structures in organisations and equal pay and um, every person on the boat had a vote. Yeah, whoever they were,
1: whatever level they were, everyone had an equal voice in anything any matter of importance. I think it was described as
0: right. They had uh, cocktails. They did. They invented cocktails, so we can thank the pirates for that. I love a rum cocktail. As do I as do I so, um, and they had same sex marriage they did they did with, uh, they had like wills didn't they for same sex marriage and stuff so yeah um, just more than it meets the eye when you go and dig into it so keep an eye out for that it comes out in May and if you'd like a copy then ask us a question at the end Yeah. so that's, that's three ideas and, and we covered the ethics as well um, and so I think it's probably time to talk a tech. little bit about the tech yeah. Yeah. the all important tech
1: there's so much tech that we could pick out right. There's so many things in this world, but we've picked three areas
0: of tech that we find fascinating. The first of those is robotics. Ah, robotics. Yes. So, um, this little gift for you is a robot surgeon stitching up a
1: grape. And I've got to say the last time I performed surgery on a grape, it did not come off well for the grape. <laughs>
0: No, and I I suspect even a well-trained surgeon would probably have a bit of a disaster with a grapes. I gave up. I ate the rest of the packet. I'm like, what have I bought this planet of grapes for to perform surgery on? Um, And so um, I think it's really interesting that we're kind of getting there now with robot surgery and that healthcare is one of these areas. You know, you think about abundance, you think about some of that stuff we were talking about before and how that combines with robot surgery and, and where robotics is going. I think it's really interesting. And it seems reasonable to me that in, say, five or ten years' time, you wouldn't let a human surgeon near you if there was a robotic surgeon available, because what people say about surgery, right, is that you're always best off, if you've got a difficult surgery you need to have, find the surgeon who does that operation most frequently, right? Preferably someone who's done it multiple times that week, and that's what gives you the best success rate. And after he's not had a night out. And definitely after he's done a night that? Out? <laughs> Did I just make that up? Um, make sure he's not been doing anything weird with grapes. And... Um,
1: yeah, so... Or been using his weekend camera in a funny way.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that Thanks wasn't God. part of the script. So, you know, I think it's, it's really interesting that we'll be in this situation where a robot surgeon will have the, the knowledge of every single time an operation has been carried out and will very quickly become far more accurate and consistent than a human surgeon would be. Yeah. Um, but let's, uh, let's move on a little bit with robotics because you can't talk about robotics without showing a, a video from Boston Dynamics so, okay let's have a look at this this a is a great video let's have a look. so um, that's a robot called the Spot Mini which Boston Dynamics developed and I think what's really interesting about that is just seeing robots working together Right? we often think about robots as a kind of insular thing and, and you start to think about what robots could do if they were combined do you think about robot surgeons do you think about you know not only can the robot perform the surgery on you, it might be able to open the door and let itself in first, and then things start to get really interesting, so yeah, or it might get another one that does that for it because Perhaps. you know the uh, robot surgeon's pay grade is higher, and it doesn't need to open doors so. <laughs> something like that something like that and so um so yeah, robots are a big thing uh they're going to be an ever greater part of our lives and I think we're kind of terrified of them right now, but I think we're going to see that change as they become just a bit more familiar to us.
1: And we think the changes in healthcare generally, I mean, I think are particularly fascinating as as medicine becomes preventative and and as we may be, so there's this idea of digital twins where we have digital versions of physical things. But if we have a digital twin of ourselves and you can do what if analysis on your own body, like what if I go out and get drunk 10 nights in a row, will that give me... Uh, an esophagus disorder in my seventies. Uh, then it starts to become quite fascinating, and maybe we'll spend more time in. You know, people talk about spending more more times in a second world. Um, uh, we could be like playing a version of ourselves, seeing how, how how bad we end up physically based on our DNA. I mean, on one of our episodes, what we did is uh, Rob did a twenty three and Me test um, live on the air, which was. Interesting. It yeah, could have been awful. Revealed the results live. It turned out to be okay. Yeah. Um, but, but as we start to, uh, and I've, I've been um, involved with a project recently that, that can go to another level of depth of detail when it comes to um, DNA analysis, the amount that we're going to be able to find out, and the, as, as the sort of quantified self moves to the optimized self moves to the we can predict ourselves, uh, the opportunity around healthcare and the solutions to those problems and challenges um, become fascinating.
0: Yeah, and I think this leads us nicely into talking a little bit about artificial intelligence, right? It does. So, um, AI is is here to stay. It's, it's incredible, the, the innovation that's happened with this over the last year. And um, if we can just have the slide back up, this chap is on the right there is called Lee Sedol. And he is the best Go player in the world. He's dedicated
1: his life to being great at Go. He spent all of his time dedicated to that. And then something comes along that messes with his world.
0: Yeah, so uh, this is the, the DeepMind project. Uh, so Google DeepMind is a, essentially a research facility based out of Oxford University or, so that was kind of born out of Oxford University. And um, they decided to kind of build on the work that Deep Blue did with chess from IBM and, and try and take on the game of Go. So Go is the most complicated game that mankind has ever created, certainly the most complicated board game. Uh, They reckon it's been played for thousands of years, which is interesting, Yeah, Um, and there's this kind of Dan system in Go, a bit like with karate or something, so uh, Lisa Sedol is a nine Dan Go player. He's to Go what Roger Federer is to tennis. He's won, I think, 15 world championships. He's like the best Go player by some margin, right? It's not quite as glamorous as tennis, though. He
1: doesn't have the same level of sponsorship deal.
0: No. No personalized Nike clothing, unfortunately, but... He is this is just incredible force. And in China and Korea and and a few other countries, Go is this kind of almost spiritual thing. It it sort of transcends just being a competitive game and actually becomes almost an art form, right? Like it becomes, it sort of almost integrates with philosophy. And so um, it's quite a kind of powerful thing for a computer to beat a human at Go in those places. And what DeepMind managed to do was create AlphaGo, which is this program, this artificial intelligence program based on neural nets that, that won. it it beat the champion, and it it beat him four games to one. We know that AlphaGo was gutted about the one that it lost.
1: (laughs) Devastated. It Uh, it went away and played five million more games against itself just to try and uh, make sure that didn't happen again.
0: Which is exactly how it learns. And, and, you know, coming back to the digital twin thing, like, imagine if your robot surgeon could perform 5,000 surgeries on your body, right, before it then... Your digital twin. Exactly. So um, I think what's really interesting about AlphaGo and, and what we can kind of take from it is... So it's narrow AI. It's AI that's been designed to do one thing very, very well and and quite a complicated thing, admittedly. But the reason they did this was not just to show off and prove that they could do it. It was because they wanted to practice the techniques that they could then apply to all kinds of other things. So I think it's really interesting seeing that they managed to achieve something so complicated. Now they can use that same structure and apply it to all kinds of other things, which they're doing, like scanning x-rays for cancer and all kinds of stuff like that. But the other quite profound thing for me from it was that Lisa Dole gave some interviews after he lost, and he said that some of the moves that AlphaGo had played were moves that a human just would never play, and it kind of, for a while, he sort of thought maybe it was making mistakes, and there were all these commentators going crazy, like, what's it doing, like, this is, you know, you would never do that, and and actually what they realized was that it was playing almost a level beyond where they were playing. It was kind of, if, if, te- if there is such a thing as 10 and 11 Dan go, then maybe that's what it looks like. And it kind of opened his mind to playing the game in a different way, and as a result made him a better player. And he then went on to win the, the subsequent 25 tournament games at the highest level consecutively, right? So I think what's really interesting about that is that maybe that, that combination of us, the human, and the computer gives you something even greater. And, and it was kind of a, quite a special moment, I think, for him. He said it changed his view of the game he dedicated his life to. And it was a, an experience that he says he'll never forget, and one of the best experiences he ever had in his life. So,
1: Which is good, he, you know, because you could just be annoyed about it, right? You could just be super pissed off getting beaten
0: on national TV. In fact, they said like 80,000, no, sorry, it was, I can't remember the numbers, it was 80 million people watched it online or something. Absolutely insane number of people. So, yeah, it was, it was a big deal.
1: Yeah, AlphaGo did well. Yes, it does. The reason that I'm excited about this is something slightly different, though, because there's sort of advanced people like DeepMind working on artificial intelligence and machine learning products, but. As um, with all technology there 's a trickle down to people, and this is a uh, deep lens from, a- uh, from Amazon, and this is going to be available really soon for two hundred and forty nine dollars and it 's an out of the box deep learning uh, camera video camera that you can use and you know the fact that makers and developers and the people who are at this conference are going to be able to have their hands on something that, and start doing their own mach- machine learning projects within ten minutes is incredible and one of the out of the box projects is um, is it a hot dog or not a hot dog? Um, so, uh, okay, it's not quite uh, beating everyone at go, but I love how accessible this is, uh, and it's something that's really, really in the hands of everyone to start you know, building machine learning models and understanding it. And one of the building blocks of, of our point today, really, which is as all of these technologies converge, things start to get really, really interesting.
0: Yeah, and the important thing to remember about machine learning is the more learning that you feed it, the better it gets, right? So this idea that suddenly we might have these deep learning cameras in the hands of all of us, and you know, the network effect that that will have on the quality of, of some of these algorithms and, and systems is incredible. So, uh, yeah,
1: Rob, it wouldn't be somewhere that I spend my time on stage with you if we didn't talk about blockchain. Okay. For this audience, like, so normally what I do is I taunt Rob with the question, what is blockchain? Uh, and I, I, I do that repeatedly, um, and I get different questions from him, different answers from him. But today, I'm going to assume that everyone knows what blockchain is, and I'm going to ask you to talk about why you think it's important in this world of abundance, where energy is free, uh, and we're going to have a second renaissance.
0: Certainly, yeah. Blockchain, probably one of the hottest technology trends of 2017, uh, and incidentally, at the very top of the hype curve. Yeah, yeah. I've the hype cycle. It's right up there. Um, There's a talk today about Ethereum as well. Which... I look forward to hearing what it was about. Um, Blockchain is, I won't get into the kind of depth of the technology, but just understand that it is a new and profound way of writing software which opens up the possibilities to do things in a very different way. And I think what's really interesting about blockchain is it's going to become a key kind of building block and framework, much like the internet was, that will allow us to kind of create new structures both in terms of technology, but also in terms of financial systems, and, and I think it's going to disrupt capitalism as we know it, quite significantly. Uh, and that monster slide that I don't expect you to be able to see all of, kind of illustrates all the different little weird and wonderful things it can do. But basically, it's going to change every industry as we know it, in some way. Um, it's going to change politics, undoubtedly. Definitely going to change money. I mean, everyone talks about Bitcoin, kind of the most well-known blockchain implementation. But it's also going to have a place in making some of these AI machine learning networks work, and, and things like that. So. Um, you owe it to yourself to start learning about blockchain if you're, if you're not already because it's something that is not going away and is going to open up all kinds of amazing possibilities in whatever you do day to day and for us and, and as part of today's talk it really represents part of that system that allows you to be a bit more
1: pirate, to be a bit more punk mm-hmm. uh, to uh, see a world where there is demonetization, decentralisation so it's one of the joining threads along with things like machine learning and artificial intelligence but none of this would come together without people And so uh, we should probably talk about some of the people. And uh, it wouldn't be time together with with, with you, Rob, if we didn't talk about Mr. Elon Musk.
0: Indeed. So, um, yeah, we've got three people to talk about to to round off. So Elon is, I think, an incredible guy. And I know that people get a bit um, pissed off, I guess, with everyone going on about Elon Musk all the time. But I think he's going to go down in history as one of our great minds and our great visionaries. And... I don't think that's because he's managed to make the stuff of sci-fi possible in reusable rockets. I don't think it's because he created Hyperloop as an idea and gave it away and it might end up being the most transformational transportation network in our history. I don't think it's because he's made electric cars possible. Actually, I think it's because he's going to inspire an entire generation. And I think he's given us this opportunity to be explorers again and to be adventurous and to challenge the impossible in a way that perhaps Nobody else had done for quite a while. Rob, let's, let's just take this
1: down a level and go. So uh, We saw a tweet earlier. Yeah. Elon. We did. He's here right to tomorrow. He He's here tomorrow. He's here tomorrow. If you bump into him in the toilet, <laughs> stood next to
0: him in the urinal. Oh, God. Sign my chest, Elon. <laughs> are you, are you going to say something? <laughs> I, I'd say hello. If you're one moment. That awkward handshake at the urinals is what everybody likes. Um, <laughs> not that hand. No, not that hand. <laughs> Elon is an amazing guy and he also, uh, breaking news just before we came on stage today, announced that for the Boring Company project that he's doing where he's making these tunnels, he said that he's going to prioritise pedestrians and public transport over cars to try and allow people that can't afford cars priority access to the system. That's literally in the last two hours today. So, you know, I think he's a real inspiration to to a lot of people and is one of the great people that might be part of this new second renaissance that we're talking about.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I'm going to move on and, and, and talk about uh, someone else. Please do. Um, I'm going to talk about Simone Gertz, who's also a South by Southwest. She's the queen of crappy robots. Uh, so we, we get all, we all get, get like rocket and solar filled with Rob. But I think um, it was International Women's Day yesterday, and I think Simone is an incredible example of an artist and a maker. Uh, and if we compare to Renaissance times, someone that is... Uh, forging their own path that's being a bit pirate that's working with technology and inspiring more people uh, to get really active and I think youtubers as as a set of people you know are are those artists of today that uh, connect with audiences connect with people and one of the things that we know is that um, I think by in two or three years time uh, people will consume more fake news than real news and so people will be more influenced by a, a smaller sphere of influencers and people that they really trust. And I think Simone makes awesome crappy robots, uh, but she also works with technology, uh, uses machine learning, uses things that learn to uh, get people excited about what, what, can, what can be done and what's possible. And so here is one of our favorite versions of her crappy robot, robots. Hey, Google. Turn on the soup robot. You got it.
0: Turning the soup robot on.
1: It works, right? (laughs) She got some soup. It was pumpkin soup. We didn't play the whole video. There was actually, in the whole video, you saw her make the soup as well um, in advance. But I think, um, you know, storytelling and entertainment is a way to get people involved in things and excited about things. And I think um, Simone does that really well. And uh, I think... The next generation of people that can work with deep lens uh, and build their own machine learning models and know how to distribute their content even more effectively than the people that are doing it now uh, are going to be the people that can start to have a real impact on the world. And I think if we can make sure that conversation includes, uh, you know, citizenship and ethics and all of those kinds of things that we've talked about today, then we can build an optimistic and brighter future for us all. Um, And finally the last people that we think are important, the last person we think is important is you. Uh, we, we've said this a couple of times, but it's the people in this room that, that work in the organizations, that, that, that have the connections to make sure that technology is used for good more than it's used for bad. So you're the people that can be more punk, you can be more pirate. Uh, You can think about how technology is affecting people's lives. You can listen to our podcast. I mean, that would be a small step that's easy to take for anyone. Um, uh, And um, I thought I'd slip that in. SoundCloud and iTunes, I mean. Yeah, Yeah, you can get there. Um, What what our message is, you know, be part of this conversation. uh, Make this a second renaissance where all of this technology comes together for good. uh, And we will make a world that is a better place. Thank you.
0: Thank you.